Let's have a word of prayer as we begin. Father, I thank you for your word, for how it guides us and how it teaches us, how it reveals uh, who we are inside and begins the work by your spirit of transforming us to be more like Jesus Christ. Lord, we recognize none of us are there yet. We're all in process. We're all still being built. Uh, But we ask, Lord, that each and every day you would shape us a little bit more like our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, because we want to be free of the sin that seeks to have power and control over us. Uh, Because, Father, we want to be light in the world like Jesus is light in the world. And because, Father, uh, you are good. And we want to praise you by the way we live. Speak to us this morning, Father. Uh, and help us to hear, uh, to understand, and to obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, it was actually in 2008, there was a, a movie that came out. Uh, some of you have remarked before that a lot of my illustrations and analogies come from movies. Well, it's because I love movies, and especially superhero movies, as you all know and are tired of by this point. But in 2008, the second of the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy movies came out. Uh, Yes, all of my examples do come from superhero movies. And it was called The Dark Knight. And uh, if you haven't seen it, it's really a pretty spectacular movie, although grim. So don't go into it thinking it's it's like the old Adam West Batman. It's very different. Uh, But there is a scene in the movie where Bruce Wayne and his date... And Harvey Dent, the famous lawyer of Gotham who's not afraid to go after the bad guys, uh, are having dinner together along with Harvey Dent's and Bruce Wayne's love interests, uh, excuse me, love interest, uh, although we won't get into that this morning. I actually thought a lot about this movie as I was reading through this passage because a number of the themes in that movie actually come out to play in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. One of them is at this scene, them all having dinner. Uh, Harvey Dent is saying, hey, uh, Batman's not such a bad guy. Because, yeah, he's breaking all the laws, but he's trying to do what's right. And somebody has to stand up for what's right in this town. And they have a sort of uh, basic philosophical discussion about the, the philosopher king and who he should be and what he would look like. But then Harvey Dent says something. He says, I guess you either die a hero or live long enough to become the villain. And that kind of jumps out at you, doesn't it? I guess you either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Let me tell you another story. This one actually comes out of the history of the people of Israel. Uh, It comes from the Hasmonean dynasty. Oh, man, my papers are all messed up this morning. It comes from the Hasmonean dynasty. And uh, what happened in ancient Israel is that in the second century B.C., so this is about 200 years uh, before Jesus comes uh, to die, comes to Jerusalem to die, uh, there was a new king in the Seleucid Empire. Now, Alexander the Great went out and conquered the known world. When he died, his empire was divided among his four surviving, or four of his surviving generals. And the eastern portion of the, army, uh, of the empire was divided between the Ptolemies in the south and the Seleucids in the north. So Asia Minor, all the way down to Palestine, stretching east and west a little ways, is the Seleucid Empire. 
and the Seleucids and the Ptolemies for years fought over their territorial boundaries. And if the Ptolemies are in the north, the Seleucids in the south around Egypt, the Ptolemies around Turkey, guess what's right in the middle of their two empires? Israel. And Israel was fought over by these two empires for years, decades, and even centuries, changing hands constantly. And finally, in the second century, when the nation of Israel was under the control of the Seleucid Empire, a new ruler arises, and his name is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And he hates the Jews with a fiery, burning passion. And he goes to the temple one day. I think he sat back and thought, what is the very worst thing I can do to the Jews? He brought a pig into the temple and sacrificed it to the pagan gods. And this so incensed the Jews, especially the the family of the Maccabees, the Hasmonean family, who earned the nickname Maccabeus, which means hammer. You can tell where this story is going. And they stage a revolution against Antiochus and against the Seleucid Empire. And after years of fighting, they win. They win. They kick the Seleucids out of Israel. They hold the Ptolemies off, and Israel is independent for the first time in hundreds of years since before the Babylonian invasion, almost 400 years before. Unbelievable. They are free. And something interesting happens. See, uh, Simon Maccabeus goes and he conquers the citadel in Jerusalem. One of the last fights that they have is over the citadel in Jerusalem. And he, he conquers it. The people there give up. They surrender. They leave. And now they are masters of their capital once again. And they can repair the temple once again. And when the people, when the enemies left the citadel in Jerusalem, do you know what the Maccabees did? They cut a bunch of palm fronds and they waved them around. And they shouted things like, Hosanna. They had a big parade. And when the temple was cleansed, when they got rid of the pig guts and everything horrible that Antiochus had been doing in there, they cut a bunch of palm branches. And they had a parade. And they talked about how God had saved them. The Maccabees, the Hasmonean family, were heroes. And of course, You know what happens next, don't you? It's one of the oldest stories in in human history. People come to power, and power starts to change them. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. About 100 years after the Maccabees kicked the Seleucids out, The Hasmoneans were fighting over the throne. And Herod the Great saw that he had an opportunity. And he and the Romans came in and conquered Jerusalem. And that was the end of the independence of the people of Israel until the 1940s. Like I said, it's the oldest story in the world. Empires rise and empires fall. 
revolution comes pure in its ideals, and those ideals are corrupted over time, sometimes over very short periods of time. I've spent the last year uh, reading quite a bit about the French Revolution, and it's fascinating how it starts out with people who are tired of tyranny and tired of injustice, and it turns into the reign of terror with all of the people on the Council of Public Safety presiding over the beheading of anyone who deigns to stand against the revolution. The same thing happened in Russia, only uh, the Russian revolution was maybe a bit less pure from the very beginning. Uh, The communists under Lenin were pretty scary people. You either die a hero or live long enough to become the villain. See, that's always been the problem in our world. People get power and it changes them and it transforms them. And there are very, very, very few people who can resist that transformation. In both big and small ways, there aren't just tyrants in charge of nations, are there? There are tyrants uh, in charge of our workplaces sometimes. Tyrants in charge of our volunteer organization. Tyrants even in charge of churches. We keep doing it the same way, don't we? Because what other way is there? Every four years in our country, the election rolls around. Jesus isn't running for president, folks. I think many of us feel we make the best with what we have. But if that's all we have to hope in, we don't have a lot of hope, do we? Because empires rise and empires fall. Because it's the oldest story in the history of the world. You either die a hero or you live long enough to become the villain. But something different happened on Palm Sunday nearly 2,000 years ago. See, God knew all about what this was like. God understood the way of the world. He understands the corruption that dwells in our hearts and in our souls better than we do. You ever feel ashamed before God because of sin? I do. I feel ashamed, you know, more often than I'd care to admit in front of a lot more people than I'd care to admit because of my mistakes, not just because of my sin. But the fact of the matter is that when we make mistakes and when we sin, we often don't reap the worst of it. We rarely reap the worst of it, do we? The criminal who goes to jail for murder is still alive. See, God knows the depths of our sin better than we do. And while in some ways that's a terrifying thought, in other ways it's our only, only hope. Because we haven't been able to sort it out. We haven't been able to figure it out as the human race. You know, we still encounter people to this day who are saying, well, we've got the cure. We've got the magic solution. And we want to, at least I want to point them back to the book of Ecclesiastes and say, hey, like the preacher said, there is nothing new under the sun. We're just making the same mistakes over and over again, putting them in different clothes. There's nothing really new. You notice in our own culture, we have uh, the experiment that was a pure free market, more or less. 
and we found that there were problems with the pure free market, didn't we? This, this isn't intended to be a political discourse or an economics discourse. I'm not qualified for either. Just saying that if we look at when our people were in charge, our problems didn't all get solved, did they? As a matter of fact, sometimes they became much worse. We can just go back to the early 2000s and the credit crisis. I was a banker. I watched it happen firsthand. On the flip side, we have folks who say, well, if we just had more laws or better laws, then everything would be all right. And we say, you know, we've tried that before. I saw this Babylon Bee article once. Anyone here familiar with the Babylon Bee? Uh, it's a Christian satirical news site. Okay, They're, the headlines are all jokes. They are not true. Sometimes people get confused. I'm just warning you. They are not true. And I saw a headline once that said, you know, uh, uh, socialists wish that there was some historical example of socialism in the history that we could study to see whether or not it worked. Right? Like the Soviet Union. That's the joke. <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun. We've tried it all. There's no idea that's going to fix what's gone wrong with our world. But there is a person who can do it. There is a person who can do it. Isaiah chapter 11, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. We read that verse. We didn't read the verses before. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, a tree that's been cut down, right? The line of David seems to be finished. The exile has happened. Israel has been conquered. And yet God says David will still have a son to sit on the throne. I made the promise. I'm not going to fail to keep it. And as a matter of fact, he uses this imagery of a tree because in Isaiah chapter 10, he'd also used the imagery of trees. He says, Assyria, that great empire that I used to punish Israel, they will be cut down like a forest cut down. All of the branches of their trees will be cut off. The trees themselves will fall and a shoot will come out of the stump of Jesse, David's father. Where Assyria will fail, Israel will rise again because I will give you that king that you're looking for. Not the brand new government, you know, the innovative sort of, uh, we figured out the new laws or the new way or something like that. I will give you the person that you need in the line of David. You know, it's fascinating, these, these Maccabeans, these Hasmoneans, it, those words, let's use them interchangeably just in case it's getting confusing. These Maccabeans, they started off pretty well, like we said, but they took over the kingship, even though they weren't David's kids. They took over the high priesthood, whether or not they belonged to the line of Aaron. We can fix it, they said, and they never did. So why is Jesus different? Well, the passage continues. First of all, he says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. You know, sometimes uh, you know, when we look at leaders, we think that must be a great leader because they have the skills they need. 
Well, here's the good news. Jesus has the skills that we need. He is full of wisdom and understanding, godly, divine wisdom and understanding. Not just the best that humanity can produce, but the best that God can produce. He is full of the spirit of counsel and of might. He is a great general who can defend God's people. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And that's where we get a little bit different, don't we? Because so often, almost all the time, What we find in the people who want to belong to leadership is that they have the skills to do so, but not the heart, not the character. And sometimes we excuse that, both because it's hard to find someone who ticks all the boxes, right? Well, let's leave it at that. But we need both. Because otherwise, they will live long enough to become the villain. We need the skill to rule, as well as the character to rule. Jesus Christ has both. All of the wisdom that we need, all of the power and strength that we need, and all of the holiness that we need as well. He'll always use those things right. He won't do it wrong. What does it look like when you've got a king like this? Notice, by the way, the Bible is not a democracy. It doesn't point us toward a democracy. It points us to the absolute rule of the absolutely qualified and good king. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. Because as human beings, that's the best we can do, isn't it? Someone brings a problem in front of us, and all we can work with is the information that's before us. And it's never enough, is it? It's never enough. We know this as parents. Your children come up to you, and they, you know, they've been yelling at each other, having an argument, not citing any children specifically, because we've all been there. And how are we supposed to decide between them? Because we weren't there. All we have is the way the kids are telling it. And, you know, even honest kids sometimes see events very differently, don't they? I found that with adults as well. When you're mediating conflict between different people, they have very different perspectives on what happened. And you think, are you even, did you even experience the same thing? See, we need better than a human understanding to really give justice to the world, to really be that qualified judge. Someone who doesn't just judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with an unfailing righteousness, judge for the needy. Isn't it interesting who uh, Isaiah chooses to bring into the picture here? He doesn't say, uh, with unfailing righteousness, uh, uh, give justice to everyone. Does he? I-, I think that's implied. But frankly, it's easier for some people to get justice than others, isn't it? I know someone in Lemon Cove who was very sick, and uh, the sickness that he had affected his thinking such that sometimes he didn't even really know what he was doing. He trespassed on a neighbor's property who they had a conflict between each other, and and, uh, they called the cops. The cops came out and threw him in jail. This guy was very sick while he was in jail. He didn't get the legal help that he needed. He didn't get the medical help he needed, and he died. Because it's easier for some people 
to get treated well, to get treated justly than it is for others. And I don't mean that in a look at it's all these people's fault sort of way. I just mean this. This is a human reality. It's hard to give justice to people who are different than we are, who don't have the resources that they need to participate in the system the way it's designed to work. Because we don't really believe that most public defenders are the equivalent of being able to hire whoever you want to defend you, do we? It's easier for some people to get justice than others. But Jesus will make that right. With righteousness, he will judge for the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Not only is he wise, remember the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, but it's also the spirit of counsel and of might. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Sometimes we know who the bad guys are, don't we? I want to be careful in saying that because ultimately we are all bad guys and girls and women and men who are redeemed through grace. We're no one who can look down on anyone else and say, well, you know, you are really bad. We're pretty good over here. You're the bad ones. You're the problem. Wouldn't it be nice if the world was divided that way? Then we'd know what to do. You're the bad ones. Get rid of you. Everything will be fine. But life's not that simple. But Jesus not only has the wisdom to recognize evil in our world, where even we struggle to with the help of God's word, He is powerful to deal with it, to give evil what it deserves, and to really make the world finally and fully a better place, the place it was always meant to be. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The spirit of wisdom and understanding enables Jesus, the Son of God, to have the knowledge he needs to rule well. The spirit of counsel and might means he has the power he needs to work well. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord means that he is righteous and faithful so that his kingdom will never go off track, so that he will never live long enough to become the villain. What does that world look like? The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, and the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. It goes on saying, The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest, and they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Yesterday, uh, the kids and I went hiking up at Ladybug. I don't know if you've been there before. But, uh, of course, you get there, you got to put all your food in the bear boxes and stuff. And the question on everyone's mind is, are we going to see a bear? And we didn't see a bear, but I sure think we heard one. We were walking down uh, the trail. We'd only gone about a quarter mile, and there was some thick brush on one side. It was pretty tall, and we heard an angry snort. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I have all of these delicious little appetizers with me. 
What am I going to do as a father? It was terrifying because even if it was, you know, a, a snort that I didn't really know what was back there, it could be nothing at all. It could be back there and not care about us at all. I'm just thinking these look like mighty tasty treats. We need to keep moving without panicking the children. Everything's fine, children. Just go faster, 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 on and on. See, the, the point in Isaiah chapter 11 here isn't that, uh, hey, you know, the uh, lions are going to start hanging out with their prey and they're going to get along because who cares about that? The point is the peace that King Jesus brings is like lions lying down with lambs. It is so thorough. It is so absolute that it changes the nature of the world that we live in. I don't know anything about the future of lions and lambs, but I do know that there is a peace coming that passes all of our understanding, and it comes with the reign of Jesus Christ. Not only this, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This last week, I read an article on moral therapeutic deism. You ever heard that phrase before? I don't blame you if you haven't. But it's basically the idea that the purpose of life is to find the things that make us feel good. Make us feel good. It's an attractive-sounding thing, isn't it? Find the things that make you feel, because who doesn't want to feel good? Is there anyone here who really likes feeling bad? No. <laughs> Even if you liked feeling bad, then you would like it and it would be good for you. <laughs> no. We all want to feel good. The problem is when we start thinking that the world exists so that I can feel good. Because what comes out of that? Well, it makes me feel good, even if it makes you feel bad. How do you judge between those things? How do you judge between two people who legitimately want different things? You can't. If that's all that life is about, whatever makes you feel good, if that's our ultimate purpose, just to feel good, then we're just going to end up out of peace again. It'll happen. Irrevocably. It must happen if the world is only about feeling good. But that's not how God made the world. He's smarter and wiser than that. The world is made to be in relationship with God, which, by the way, feels pretty darn good. Because God is good. See, the point of our lives is to enjoy the goodness of God. He is our legitimate desire more so than anything else. And he satisfies more deeply than anything else because everything else is little compared to him. Everything else runs out compared to him. Think about the person you love best in the world and who loves you best in the world. Do they always have time for you? Of course not. Because 
sometimes they got to go to work to pay the bills. And sometimes they have to go spend time with somebody else. And sometimes they're in the hospital and they can't get out of bed to see you. But God is never like that. Every time we come to him, no matter what's going on, no matter what we've done, he is always ready, always ready for us. He always turns his full attention on us. He is never in the hospital. He is never distracted. That's how big he is. He is different than we are. That word holy doesn't just mean righteous or doesn't sin. It also means holy other. He is different. He is not a human being. Praise God. We got enough human beings but we need more of him. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea because that's what God has intended and that's what Jesus will bring about. What happens then? Well, let's be clear. We live in an in-between time. Jesus has come and now he's ascended. He is now at the right hand of the Father, just like the creed says that we say frequently in this place. That's where Jesus is physically located. He is present with us by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, although he is crowned king, has still in some ways not claimed fully the kingship. That's why he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Remember Pilate says, are you a king like they say? Because that's a capital offense. Yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. It's not until heaven comes down to earth that Jesus sits on the throne of both and rules over us. And so in the in-between time, there are people who still resist his rule, aren't there? And our job is not to go out and you know, make sure that they bend their knee by force if we must, because that's not what Jesus did. Jesus was willing to say, in this in-between time, some are not going to bow their knee. That's how it's going to be. That's how he died and why he died. But a day is coming when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father from Philippians 2. And then this is what it'll look like. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt and Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean, from everywhere the people called by his name have gone. See, Christianity is not primarily about here are the 10 things you must do today in order to be a good and decent person. Christianity is about we have found the only truly good and decent person who have ever lived. Come and meet him. He is coming back one day. And oh, that'll be a day. That'll be a day. That's what we start to see in part on Palm Sunday. And there's a lot that we have to hold in our hearts and our minds as we wait. We remember that the people who greeted Jesus as king on Palm Sunday crucified him on Friday. That his closest followers abandoned him on Friday and on Saturday. 
wouldn't even believe that he was risen from the dead until Jesus appeared and said, here, you know, feel, feel my body. It's mine. I'm here. So we need to learn from them not to reject, but to wait for the day that is coming. See, there's a, another line out of the dark night. Yeah, if we either die a hero or live long enough to become the villain. But see, Jesus really did die a hero, and he lives again to never become the villain. And then something else happens at the end. See, Harvey Dent was the hero that everyone thought Gotham needed. I feel kind of weird and ridiculous saying this, but he was the one. Everyone looked at him and said, he, he's the one who can take us to the next place that we need to go. But Harvey Dent became the villain. He lived too long. And then someone said about the dark night, about Batman, he is the hero that we deserve. He's the hero that they needed. See, that's what Jesus is. Not Batman. He's better than that. He is the hero that we need because he died a hero and he lives again. What does life have for him that he can be tempted or swayed by? He is the Son of God. He is qualified to sit on the throne and reign forever.